0: Welcome to episode 186, On the Road Without a Map, The Value of Accurate Diagnoses for Better Outcomes, featuring Dr. Shiro Pereira-Torquado. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and I am delighted to be again joined by a dear colleague of mine. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Shiro Pereira Torquato. She is a licensed psychologist out of California, and her specialization has really been working children and adolescents through psych testing. And Dr. Torquato and I had connected about the importance of diagnosis kind of in the the whole arc of treatment. And I'm grateful to her for joining us again today to have this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Torquato. You're welcome. Um, For our folks who are listening, why don't you introduce yourself Um, and, again, to our listeners. You've probably heard from her before. She's done some wonderful other episodes for us about um, typical and atypical development, about um, neurodiversity, and kind of the in-between with autism and ADHD. So I encourage you to listen to those. But, Shereau, for our listeners, why don't you tell them a bit more about you and how you came to land on this topic and specialization today?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, as you had said. I've been in private practice in Sydney Valley, California for 24 years now, and I've seen many, many, many children and teenagers. And um, in the course of my career, um, I have had multiple situations in which a child comes to me and the parents need some answers. They've gone to various people, they've gone to professionals, they've gone to the school district, and Things are not getting better with their child. And so my job has been to give them that clarity, those answers that they were looking for. And recently, earlier this year, I interviewed a 25-year-old young woman, and she presented with severe anxiety and depression, and she'd had these symptoms since she was 14 years old. And she had dropped out of college. She couldn't hold a job. And when I did my intake and started taking history from her and later spoke with her mother with her permission, I learned that she had a lot of childhood experiences that are consistent with other clients I've worked with who had mild autism spectrum disorder. And um, when she started having anxiety and depression as a teenager, her parents got her into therapy. She had a lot of services. She was taking medication, but still at age 25, this poor young woman was not functioning, and my heart broke for her. And in fact, in our intake session, I felt the need to apologize to her that she had been suffering for so many years because she hadn't been diagnosed properly. So that kind of made me think, and I think, you know, we communicated, and I thought this would be a good podcast to help clinicians understand there is really an importance to correct diagnoses. Another situation, a more positive note, about eight or nine years ago, I saw this uh, little boy. He was about 10 or 11, and he was severely hyperactive, severely. And I know if his parents had taken him to the pediatrician, he would have been on ADHD medication in five minutes, just the way that this boy presented. Um, instead, they brought him to me. I did a full assessment, psychological testing with him, and I found out this was a highly intelligent little boy. But he had some learning disabilities and he had pretty significant sensory processing problems that made him look like a very hyperactive adhd child and so what i did working with the parents was i explained to them what interventions would help him i helped them communicate with the school so he got the correct services he needed in terms of special education and accommodations and then a few months ago i got an email from his mom she told me he graduated from high school as a class valedictorian. He got multiple scholarships and acceptances to college, and he was in college. And I wonder, had he been misdiagnosed with ADHD and put on medication at age 11, would his outcome have been different? And so these are the kinds of situations that I encounter oftentimes. But at the same time, and this is what you know, I hope your audience understands, is a lot of, I know the audience are psychotherapists. Um, working, you know, clinicians in psychiatry and, and mental health, um, psychology, marriage and family therapists. And I get a lot of referrals. I'd say half, half of the referrals I get for my, for psychological uh, testing services are from other therapists because they're working with a client and the client's not making progress in therapy. They're skilled clinicians and they're thinking there's something else here going on. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something else going on. And they reach out to me, they refer the family to me or the client to me and say, can you give me some diagnostic clarity? Because then I know where to focus my treatment and depending on the diagnosis, it may be that I'm not the right clinician for this client that I might need to refer them to somebody who specializes in something that I'm not as skilled in, but at least I have that information for my treatment plan. As you're talking about this, and I'm sure there are other
0: listeners having similar reaction. I've certainly been there. I've absolutely been there, where I've had a client come in who may have been in and out of therapist offices, of school counselors, of whoever, and there's something there. (laughs) You know, there's something there, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if that's right. Um, I mean, like maybe, maybe that's part of it. Uh, I was just having a conversation the other day with a loved one whose child had been diagnosed with ADHD, exactly as you said. And it turned out that the child didn't actually have ADHD and it was a sensory processing. There was dyslexia, there other stuff that was going on. Um, but exact same situation, in fact, is what you just described. And in this case, uh, the child went to the doctor, was given medication. Oddly enough, the medication didn't work uh, because the child didn't actually have ADHD. Uh, and you realize that this happens. It probably happens quite often. And it is to such disservice for these clients and their families when we are administering a treatment that doesn't have a very high likelihood of working because we're
1: not treating the right condition. Exactly. In fact. Exactly. I would say 40 to 60% of the children that come to see me have either been diagnosed or suspected of having ADHD. Some have even been medicated and they don't have that diagnosis because we know ADHD or attention problems or impulse control. It's, these are manifestations of many things, anxiety, sensory processing, learning issues, auditory processing, visual processing. So There's so many things that Present as an attention problem, and when you let slap that label on, which a lot of times that's the first course of treatment that the parents go to is the pediatrician. It's not necessarily a mental health professional. Um, then that's that's what you know they get labeled with. So let's talk about labeling. And as
0: we record this, we're in 2023. There have been many more conversations in the last decade about the problems with diagnosing. And for folks who are listening, we have a really great episode with Dr. Stephanie Wu, where she's talking about the DSM and the updates. We have another one we're going to be doing soon. That's talking about the DSM meets the ICD-10 and kind of the intricacies of diagnosing in the different systems. Can you start by talking about even just, I guess some of the pros and cons of diagnosis, because for some of us, we lean out from this idea of slapping a diagnosis on a client or this idea of we're only doing it for insurance purposes. Can you speak to some of that? Because this can be really controversial and confusing.
1: Yes, very much so. In fact, I was going to mention Dr. Stephanie Wu's um, podcast. I had listened to it and it was excellent. Um, just for the listeners who are not familiar with the podcast, it is episode 175. I recommend that people listen to it. But uh, Dr. Wu is a psychology professor at Pepperdine University here in California. And she wrote a book. Um, entitled Diagnosis and Treatment of Mental Disorders Across the Lifespan. As a professor in the psychology department at Pepperdine University, she uses this book to teach graduate students about making diagnoses. And one thing she said in the podcast that made a lot of sense to me, and I definitely have learned this myself in my own training and clinical experience, is a diagnosis. One of the primary purposes of a diagnosis is not just to slap a label on or as, as you mentioned, satisfy the, the insurance company wanting a label, but it's a communication tool. It's a way for clinicians in the medical field, in the mental health field, to be able to share information where the client doesn't have to keep repeating the stories over and over again. It's less burden on them, and it's a good way for us to be able to work together. Um, for example, I get referrals from psychiatrists, and they'll, contact me after I get the client to sign a release or I'll contact them and they'll say, well, I'm thinking of bipolar disorder or I'm thinking of this or I'm thinking of that without having to explain all the client's symptoms. I have a pretty clear idea of what that psychiatrist is considering as a differential or rule out diagnosis because we're using the same way of communicating. Um, and that that's one of the key things. Uh, the other thing is that um, there's, Um, Dr. Wu spoke about things that are very important to consider is one, the high comorbidity rate that we often see with clients. So they don't necessarily fit in one of the categorical boxes that the DSM is set up, Um, ADHD or anxiety, um, bipolar or major depression. Um, We see quite, and it's hard to make these differential diagnoses when you've got these clusters of symptoms that Showed comorbidity. Uh, But um, let me give you an example. This affects treatment. So if you've got a child with ADHD, high anxiety, and a learning disability, um, this treat the treatment, the child looks very different, but more importantly, requires a very different type of intervention than a child who has ADHD and depression because of those comorbidities. And so that's something to really consider carefully. And she talked about that very nicely and other things in the podcast. Uh, the podcast was actually about the DSMTR. So she talked about the you know, the, the new version and how to, to work around that, which I really enjoyed and appreciated. Now there's another diagnostic approach that as I was doing research for this podcast, I came across, which I thought was very fascinating. And I want to share a little bit about it with, with your listeners. Um, it's a diagnostic approach developed at the University of North Texas, and it's called Hierarchical Taxonomy of Psychopathology. It's also known as High Top H I and then capital T O P High Top. HITOP. Um, and in the references, there is a link to the website um, at the University of North Texas, so you can learn a lot more about it. But basically, the the way that this that they look at this this diagnostic approach aims um, to address a lot of the limitations in the traditional diagnostic systems we have, such as the DSM-5 and the ICD-10. They see that as li- the limitations include arbitrary boundaries between psychopathology, again, trying to fit them in a box, uh, and what is normal and what's psychopathology. Sometimes that's hard to dis- distinguish. It's often unclear about the boundaries between the disorders. And as I mentioned, there's frequent disorder co-occurrence or comorbidity and when you've got some heterogeneity in between the, the specific diagnoses that makes it even more complicated and then some di- diagnoses are not stable so they're gonna you know get worse or get better depending on situational stress and other things going on so what high does is it does two things this particular approach they use a screening questionnaire to get some specific data of things like internalizing and externalizing um Symptoms, environmental stressors, pers- interpersonal stressors, and they the data is used to develop dimensions, and they have six different dimensions in their system instead of just a category. And so, basically, it's and, and I'm overly simplifying it. I just want to let you know because we could have an entire podcast on this this particular system. It's very Interesting and complex, but the point is that there's six different levels from very general to very specific traits, and it's used to describe the particular client. The goal is to improve the case conceptualization while also specifying the more t- narrow targets for intervention or therapy. And so, as I mentioned, it's very it's too complicated for me to go into depth. But um, there's a link in my in the references of, for the for this podcast, so you can learn more about that particular uh, system. Um, I think it's it's very interesting and can give us another way of conceptualizing cases instead of just a categorical system of the DSM.
0: As we're watching the evolution of diagnosing in the mental health world, you know, I'm I'm thinking back to like use of the global assessment of functioning. So we're looking at the GAF and then we did away with the GAF and, and reflecting on what is a 42 on GAF could be a 76 in somebody else's eyes. And that that's been one of the complexities around diagnosing. And I have a family member who is a, a cardiologist. And I remember him saying once, you know, when you take whatever problem that somebody has, they they go to the doctor. And if you put them in front of an oncologist, they're going to think it's cancer. And if you put them in front of a cardiologist, they're going to think it's a heart problem. And, you know, if, if it's a rheumatologist, it's autoimmune and kind of going through this idea that we all come at a situation factors with our preconceived notions and our lens. And that, in doing so, we're, we are putting the client in a box, which is then dictating the interventions that we do, the testing that we do, and the treatment that we deliver when we could be way wrong. Uh, we could be way off. And I can appreciate that as a field, we're trying to move in a direction where we're more comprehensive about considering these different things to be able to communicate it better to other professionals. And I appreciate what you're saying and what Dr. Wu had contributed in the other episode as well. Yes there are absolutely limitations in the diagnosing system before we even started recording Dr. Torquato and I were lamenting the the third payer system in the United States you know there are there are major problems here and even if we didn't look at it through the lens of payer paye it's this idea that we could use a few words to try to sum up something, to be able to say to another professional, here's what I think is going on and here are kind of all the things that are coming with it. Um, And I think that that shared nomenclature is is important for us to hold on to um, while also appreciating, yes, we're talking about a colonial system of categorization that absolutely has some problematic history in the words that we've used and the things that we've pathologized Jackson are just simply part of the human experience. So yes, that too, this is a yes Uh and. (laughs)
1: Uh (laughs) Um, Can I, can I add something to what you were saying? As you were talking about the cardiologist and the oncologist and they all see, you know, different parts based on their training um, it reminded me of a situation, and goodness, this was really early in my career. I used to do evaluations uh, for the regional center, which here in California is an agency that provides funding and services for children with developmental disabilities. And um, I remember going to, I was doing the evaluation in the home, and I remember going and meeting this four-year-old child and her foster mother. And the foster mother shared with me, yes, the speech pathologist is treating the speech delay. The occupational therapist is treating the motor skills delay. The behavior therapist is treating the child's tantrums. The special education teacher is doing this. And they were all doing their own parts based on their own specialized training. And the child was making some progress, but the foster mother knew there was something else going on here. And that was one of the reasons that she contacted this agency to get an assessment. And each person was looking at the kind of their part of the child, the speech part or the physical part or the educational part. And the mother looked at me, she goes, you know, I kind of think my child has autism. And nobody had even mentioned that to her. And so of course I did the assessment, foster mother from her experience um, was correct. The child did have autism. We got her into the regional center. So then they tried to coordinate all of these different providers to say, Let's look at this child from not only this diagnosis, but also her strengths and weaknesses. And as we collaborate rather than doing our own little piece individually, then that's when the child makes progress. That's when we see the improvement. And in the mental health field, that could be the psychiatrist and the primary therapist, individual therapist and the family therapist. And if, you know, appropriate or necessary, the IOP group therapist as we're all kind of, instead of doing our own part and treating this problem or that problem or this concern or that reporting, as we kind of coordinate and collaborate, it makes a huge difference. And I've really had some wonderful opportunities to do that with therapists and other mental health professionals that have really benefited the student or the, the client I'm working with.
0: Absolutely. And it goes back to what I'll call perfect world, So in a perfect world, we as clinicians would be talking to the pediatrician. We would be talking to the teacher. We would perhaps have done an interview with other family members or with somebody's spouse in order to get more information. And we also operate in a system that doesn't necessarily, particularly depending on your work environment, allow time to do that. So we're coming at this almost trying to have our eyes everywhere all at once, um, and, and make a decision about diagnosis, but it goes back to the importance of collaborative care. It goes, it speaks to the importance of referring out, um, to get that medical assessment. You know, again, before we were recording, we were talking about medical issues. So many medical issues masquerade as mental health disorders. Yes. And whether that's a nutrient deficiency or, um, you know, we have the episode with Dr. Roseanne talking about Pants Pandas, where it's like, if we were just looking at this as OCD, for example, when it was actually an infection that was underlying this condition, imagine what a disservice we'd be doing. And that just that reinforcement of it's okay to take a little bit more time and say, yeah, I think you should see your primary care doctor. Maybe you should do some blood work. And have you had that other thing checked out? Because maybe that's related to what you're saying with your insomnia or your appetite being so low. I I think it's giving ourselves permission and that reminder to go back to that collaborative care model, even though we're not always in the system that's particularly supportive, which we have other episodes about that as well. Um, So understanding (laughs) like, yes, particularly if you're in a managed care environment or you're working with like grant-based public funding, good luck with time. So we're doing our best to try to serve people. And in that, that's, I think where this conversation fits in of like, so how do we actually get an accurate diagnosis? What does that look like when we have so much pressure coming from, from the patient, from the family, from the payer, from the receptionist, from like all of these different Mm -hmm. domains saying, I need it now. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, let me go through. I've got a few steps, um, that, um, I'd like to go through that will assist with that. Um, for example, I think the first thing, and this is, I can't emphasize how important this is, is when you start working with a client for the first time, spend the time doing a thorough intake. Get a detailed history. Like I primarily work with teen, teens and children, and I almost the first question I ask the family, I don't ask them, you know, why did you why are you contacting me now what are your concerns now which is typically what we do in a therapeutic environment I ask them when did you first have concerns about your child or teenager if I'm working with a young adult I will ask them something like when was the first time you remember having these feelings or experiences because that history is important and we as therapists we want to start helping and give symptom relief right away somebody has reached out to us mental health professionals they're hurting they're experiencing distress so they want some help and it's very easy to you know spend 15 minutes going through your consent forms and then take a brief history and then jump into into the therapeutic you know mode so to speak developing rapport and everything but if you take the time to get the thorough history it's going to save you a lot of time in the end for example if there was a significant life event like for example a childhood trauma history that your 25-year-old with depression is presenting with, that might not come up until much later in therapy if at all, months later. So if you get the details in the intake by asking kind of all the questions and ruling out, it could be this, it could be that, you know, uh, then you can focus the treatment on what is really contributing to what's going on with the client. So you're going to see improvement faster. Otherwise, you're spending a lot of time, okay, let's go back to this, now this, now let's jump around here. And we all know that a lot of times clients work in therapy on a crisis mode, is what is my crisis of the week? So I need help with this particular thing. And yet there was something that happened 20 years ago with the previous relationship, with some kind something that is now contributing to that coping style that the client is using that keeps putting them back in crisis. So there's that clear connection there. In my opinion um so that's the first thing the second thing as we talked about earlier consider comorbidity and the most important symptom symptoms that are affecting the client at this time what i mean by that is if you have a client with severe depression and from the history you learn that there are borderline personality disorder traits that were evident and affected them a few years back in terms of relationship it'd be you know Let's work on the borderline. Let's work on the personality disorder. So in the end, they're going to improve their relationships. But if this client is having more stress with financial stress and not being able to go to work and pay the bills because of the severe depression, it makes more sense to address that diagnosis and that condition rather than the relationship piece. Right? The other thing is like, let's say you have a child with ADHD and severe anxiety. And because of that, this child is absolutely refusing to go to school. I see a number of these kids where these parents, oh, I feel for them. They trying to get the kid out of bed, dressed for school, in the car, they're crying, they don't want to go, um, they won't get out of the car, the principal has to come and, and literally remove the child from Heal them away from peel the seat. them away from the parent. Right. I mean, that is so stressful. So we've there's something going on with this child that's contributing to the severe anxiety. So when you've got these comorbidities, you want the teacher and the parents, as well as the therapist involved in treatment, working together to develop a treatment plan that's going to address all of these pieces. That's where you're going to see the best outcome. Um, The third thing is to use readily available diagnostic checklists. The the high top um, method that I mentioned earlier, um, they talk about an online and a lot of these things can be obtained online. You don't have to buy a whole bunch of testing equipment or questionnaires and spend a ton of money. Um, but high dot, top, excuse me, recommends, um, an inventory called the personality inventory for DSM five brief form. I'll repeat that. The personality inventory for DSM five brief form adult version and you can find this at, on the website psychiatry.org, psychiatry.org. And it's just a checklist that the client fills out. It's, I don't know, it takes them five or 10 minutes to do it. And it gives them a lot, gives the clinician a lot of symptom information to kind of go, okay, what's the most pressing thing going on right now? What are the diagnoses I should consider? And you put that into the framework, the six uh, level dimensional framework of Top, to be able to say, OK, this is my treatment plan for this particular client at this particular time. It really helps delineate that nicely. Um, and then, of course, I have to mention, because this is my my area of expertise and specialization is when you're stuck in therapy, working with a client, refer for psychological evaluation. See um, the some of the referral questions that I get. It's usually diagnostic clarity. I think it's this, I'm treating for that, but I know there's something else going on. I'm not sure, sometimes they know what the something else is and they can share that information with me. Other times it's like, I can't put my finger on it. So here's some referral questions. Does the child have a learning disability or ADHD that is contributing to their anxiety related to school? I get that a lot. There's another one. Does the socially anxious and depressed teenager who struggles to make and keep friends have an autism spectrum disorder. Another one is does a college student who misses classes due to depression, but then disappears for several days on a spontaneous road trip. Is that student suffering from a bipolar disorder? So these are some of the things that would give us the diagnostic clarity to help with your treatment plan.
0: We're talking about this through the lens of comprehensiveness, which again is like in the perfect world. And I, as a clinician, continue learning, especially like working in my weird little world of clinical documentation, designing tools that programs are using and making sure, like, no, we need to ask about history of race. You know, like these things that are um, easy for us to forget that could be like almost fringe, if you will. Um, And it's so difficult for clinicians to balance. All of the things that we're trying to do in those initial sessions and for our listeners, we have a wonderful episode of Dr. Daryl Chow, where he's talking about that assessment session, like that initial, like, how do we develop rapport? How do we get these questions answered? I mean, any clinician walking into an assessment as a new clinician is just overwhelmed because it's like, uh, make eye contact and try to mirror their body language, but also get all of these questions answered And in this inventory is only nine pages long. Like, and then make sure your documentation is done by the end of the day. Like it's, it really is a tall order. And one thing I'd love for you to speak to Dr. Torcato, is like, how do we balance the assessment phase where we are potentially doing these different scales and really, we need a minute, like we need a minute to think about what's happening with this person. And again, this is perfect world where we have the ability to do that. And we're not just sailing into another session constantly. Um, but talk to me about even the permission, if you will, within the diagnosing system for initial diagnoses for rule outs. Can you talk about those for clinicians to understand, like, it's okay if you don't know at the end of the first session and here's how you manage that. Here's what you do in a chart. Here's how you communicate to others about that because here you are as a professional who's like no, my job like you you are the like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> like you're like my job is to look at all of the evidence and to get down and solve it. Right. Um but for those of us who don't do that. So for me as the therapist who does not have a specialization in testing, refer to people like you for that. What do we do when we don't know, but we have a payer that's saying like, you need to assign a diagnosis or we have an ethical mandate that's saying like in order for you to provide care, quote unquote, you need to know what you're treating. So you need to do something. Like, what do we do?
1: Well, I think, and this was at least my training is oftentimes the initial diagnosis that you're giving as a a kind of provisional diagnosis, if you will, is what the person is presenting with. I'm coming in because I'm depressed. I'm coming in because I'm anxious. I'm coming in because you know, I'm in the process of a divorce and I'm having adjustment and having trouble sleeping because of that. So that's usually kind of the initial provisional diagnosis you're going to give if you have to give one quote right away. Um, But that's your starting point. And I think that's what happens sometimes is it's easy to go with the most obvious in the room, if you will, and put that diagnosis on and continue to conceptualize that case, again, trying to be the help the, the caretaker, the helper that we're trained to be uh, without exploring it further or deeper. And so, and that's oftentimes what happens. I've I've lost count of how many, especially teenagers I've seen who've been in treatment for years to treat their anxiety or in treatment for years, like the the 25 year old I mentioned, you know, at Beginning of, of the podcast, there were there. It's not like they're denying their problems. They're seeking help. Their families are paying for their help, and yet they're not getting any better because what's being treated is what's on the surface, what's the most obvious thing that's presented in the room. Um, and so I think the importance is start with a working diagnosis, but make sure you use you know some checklists. You get more historical information um if at all possible get collateral information you know i of course do that with teachers and and parents because i work with minors but if you have an adult if they have a significant other or a parent or even a relative like an older sibling um that remembers enough information from the, the person's history or the family dynamics and can contribute information there that's all very valuable information So as part of the process, I I think what happens is we kind of slap on the diagnosis and then we move into treatment. And the assessment and the intake part should be ongoing as you're going through treatment. I think that's the important thing to consider. I appreciate that
0: point and I think that looking at the way that the DSM-5 and TR have managed that over time compared to prior versions, It's creating a diagnosis that's more living and breathing. So when we're looking at the severity rankings, when one thing I see commonly auditing charts is that we slap on a diagnosis. So we say uh, depression, severe, recurrent, and then we're five months into treatment. The person is doing really well. Now we're working on communication strategies in their intimate relationships. And really the diagnosis that's there, not only isn't appropriate for the treatment that we're doing, but it isn't even appropriate for the person's condition at that moment. And I think that's one of the beauties of the new DSM is it it was designed to have us move somebody through progress and change as they occur. So to be able to say, yes, this person came to me with X, Y, Z severe, and then it became moderate, like, <laughs> and then we got rid of it all together and we resolved that. But then we discovered that actually there were some flashbacks occurring from this thing that happened. And so then we changed the diagnosis. And I think that sometimes it's as clinicians remembering that it's, that it's okay to do that, that it's okay to start with a provisional diagnosis. And I have certainly been there. Like I have absolutely been there. I've spent a few sessions with somebody and I'm like, yeah, okay. So working on substance use disorder. and then the so it says like and then sometimes when you know at night then the zombies come and i'm like wait what you know <laughs> like, tell me more about this um and so then suddenly it goes from substance use disorder to substance induced psychotic disorder you know like that it's like well, i got more information and it's changing what's happening here and that it's okay for us to be going into the record and changing the diagnosis and I think one of the things we're afraid of is like, do we appear incompetent? You know, like do we appear like we don't know what we're doing or we didn't ask the right questions two months ago? If we go in and we change that, um, and I I don't think we do. I, I think it's I think if we're looking at the medical model. And we're looking at MDs, if something happens and they're treating a condition, but then these other symptoms appear or become known to the practitioner, they're going to change a diagnosis. And so the same would exist for us and to remember that like it's it's not because we intentionally missed something, it's because we got new information that changes our formulated case conceptualization.
1: Exactly. I think that's a really important point. I like that. I think one of the questions you know people ask is, Well, really, what is psychological testing or an evaluation? How could that contribute to uh, an accurate diagnosis rather than just an experienced clinician doing a really good intake interview? You know, you don't need to refer for testing. The kid doesn't need to be tested. The adult doesn't need to be tested. I can I'm experienced. I've been doing this a long time. I've seen a lot of clients. So I'm just going to, you know, do very Good, thorough intake and a history, his historical interview, and I'll be able to, to answer the questions. So, this is where this becomes a problem. A good intake interview takes time. It's important, but it takes time. And when you're just getting to know a client and um, the rapport has not been established yet, they may not disclose everything to you those first few sessions. And so, that information that, you know, comes in later, months later, sometimes in treatment. Now it's like, okay, now I need to consider this diagnosis. The other thing, and I'm sure everybody listening will agree, many clients lack awareness of what's really contributing to the mental health struggles. It could be underlying stressors. It could be neurodevelopmental issues. It could be a family history of things. So it's difficult for them to even tell you this happened to me when I was 10. And now this is, you know, they're coming to therapy because they don't know those answers. The other thing, and I've been seeing this a lot more. And if you work with teenagers, I'm sure some of you will agree with this, is I have noticed in the last year or so, I have have more teenagers asking their parents to be evaluated for anything from ADHD to learning issues to autism spectrum, because they're talking to their friends, they're going online, and they're researching and they think, I think this is my problem. This is why I'm depressed. This is why I'm struggling in school. This is why I don't have any friends. And because this information is so easily accessible, they'll come in and they'll report almost to the T verbatim out of, you know, a summary of the DSM, <laughs> mood swings, attention problems, um, you know, highs and lows, uh, dyslexic symptoms. And they'll report that to the therapist or the psychiatrist. And so that's the information that these clinicians are using to put this diagnosis on and sometimes even to prescribe medication. I mean, I recently had a student come in and she gave me almost exactly all of the criteria for bipolar disorder. And she had a family history of bipolar disorder. So person treating her go, oh, this this is probably what it is. Well, after I spoke to other relatives, her family that she was living with, it turns out, no, nobody else was seeing these symptoms of mania that this client was describing. And these are people who were interacting with her on a daily basis. And so she, she had decided that that was the diagnosis. and And I think that happens. And so it's easy for clinicians to get misguided by a client's strong desire to know what's wrong with me. I need to know what's wrong with me.
0: I think that's a really good point. And as you introduced this, I was smiling and nodding because I've seen exactly the same thing. And I think so many clinicians listening, particularly who are working with younger folk that are more on social media, we we see now so many mental health professionals offering resources, not therapy, but offering resources on social media. So there's an increase in knowledge and that knife cuts both ways that now you have people that are more familiar with what might be going on and resources that might be able to help them with the deficit being, I've absolutely seen the same thing. If someone comes in and says, I have autism and I go, really? Tell me (laughs) about that. (laughs) So where did this diagnosis come from? When did you do psych testing? Uh, And, and it, And they actually could absolutely be right. You know, I don't want to say Mm -hmm. just because
1: a client says this means it's wrong. Definitely not. Um, Because sometimes they are correct. (laughs) Yes, sometimes they are correct. So let me talk a little bit about how psychological testing can be beneficial. Okay. So um, psychological testing, the way that I do it, at least the way I was trained, you start out with a very good intake, but you also use standardized measures. So you can compare the clients presenting problems with others, their own age or educational level, and determine whether this is typical behavior for an eight-year-old boy or a 16-year-old girl, and it'll help you clarify the diagnosis. So that's kind of, so we're taking clinical information, combining it with your clinical observations, and then standardized testing. So here's one example of where you can kind of get to the, the more accurate diagnosis fairly quickly. And I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of this. Um, when you're working with teens or adults, there is a test called the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. There's an adult version and there's a teen version. This test, it's a true-false test that the client takes directly. They can do it online or on paper. And it takes about an hour to two hours to complete. This test can identify the most prominent mental health conditions Clients presenting what they're experiencing, their current stressors, school, family relationships, work, interpersonal relationship issues, suicidal or violent risk, and substance abuse, all in a couple of hours. It also provides a list of possible diagnoses to consider and treatment recommendations. And then the the psychologist doing the evaluation, and and this is a, a this test is blind in the sense of it's done very objectively. The only information that is used to analyze the test and to do the statistical analysis is the child is the the person's age um, and gender and educational level. So no information about the history is provided into the test. So it's very very objective. And so I take that information that I get from the interpretation of the MMPI, and I put it in the context of what are the clients presenting problems, what is the history. And which diagnosis makes the most sense? And that can be done in a couple of hours rather than months of weekly therapy. So it's very cost effective, very time effective. And it's oftentimes a good starting point for a clinician to go, let's get this person, let's get some testing done on this person. They don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on testing. Within a few hours, they could get a pretty good impression of diagnostically what's going on with this individual. And again, this is for only teens and young adults.
0: I'm glad you touch upon that piece of it too, about the cost. Um, Psych testing, I know in the work that I'm doing right now, I would say most of my clients are waiting anywhere from four months to a year and a half for actually getting psych testing done. The demand is really high. And then there's also the concern about cost and the difficulty with payers actually covering those services. And I, I appreciate what you're saying, which is we don't necessarily have to do a full battery where we're spending days and waiting on this really long wait list when there are tools available to us to help illuminate some of this information. Exactly. Um, and, and I know again, wanting to be sensitive to, as we're having this conversation, there are limitations with all of these um, of models. There are, we know that there is quite a bit of bias in the MMPI. It's evolving. It has new updates. Um, and how can we work within the framework of the tools that we have right now to get the benefits while also being realistic about the limitation to acknowledge like, yes, we're in a a realm that is imperfect and is evolving, but there are still tools available to us. That even as private practitioners, we could be getting trained in, we could learn about in order to better understand what's happening with our client. If psych testing isn't financially feasible or there's not enough time or whatever the reason is.
1: And, and it's important to understand that that's just one test and you would never make a diagnosis based on one test. So, you know, that's, but that's just an example of how you could get some good clinical information to at least give you differential diagnoses to give you, you know, some place to, to start your work. Um, another thing is with children. And I've seen this a number of times. And it's, it's one of these examples of how, you know, the incorrect diagnosis, the incorrect information can cause so much damage. And um, I've seen a number of elementary school kids, they're typically boys who are very oppositional-aggressive, both at home and at school. They often get classified by the school district as, people are going to cringe when they hear this if they're not familiar with this term, emotionally disturbed. That is a special education eligibility classification. And a lot of the children that come to me with this this history, this this profile, if you will, When I do a full assessment and I get data from parents and teachers and I look at previous testing and I um, sometimes observe the kids at school and I get a lot of information, it turns out many of these these, uh, children are on the autism spectrum. So they're being labeled as an emotionally disturbed child and being treated that way as though they have behavior problems um, and, in fact, they need... Um, social skills training. They need staff and teachers who better can understand and help them with transitions, so they're not exploding and having you know tantrums. There's so many different things that can be done with the correct information, um, and when they have the correct information and the school considers that and changes, you know, kind of what 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 they're presenting for the child and what how they're supporting the child, the outcome is better. The behavior problems decrease and overall functioning of the child improves significantly. In that example, so you have the
0: miscategorization of what's going on with this child, for example, for you as a diagnostician, so, you know, going back to you being the Sherlock Holmes, um, what do you do when there are other comorbid factors that are developmental, that are medical, things like that? how do you diagnose when there's so much overlap so for example like let's take autism spectrum disorder where we could arguably meet the diagnostic criteria for any number of other conditions but they're still part of autism spectrum are you diagnosing those other things as that kind of shared nomenclature for other clinicians to see Or is it like, here are the biggest symptoms and kind of those individual factors that I'm treating relating to this primary diagnosis?
1: Well, if the comorbidity is a mental health condition, like anxiety, for example, I see a lot of kids with anxiety and who are on the autism spectrum. But if it's something like a speech delay or sensory processing issue or some kind of a medical condition, that's, or even a learning disability, for example, that's when I refer out. I have a lot people in the community that I use as referral sources, whether they're speech therapists, occupational therapists, educational therapists who work with kids with learning disabilities, obviously the physicians or the pediatrician, um, psychiatrists, and of course, mental health you know, providers. Um, so again, I like this collaborative approach is I'm, I, I the Sherlock Holmes, I like that analogy. So I kind of answer the questions. Whether it's a diagnostic question, a developmental question, an educational question, and then I give the parent or the client some very specific recommendations. These are the people to see. These are the things you can do in order to really bring in all the things necessary to help the client or your child. Um, and it's with that combined intervention, rather than just the therapy or just the speech therapy or you know whatever it may be, that that they're focusing on, as I said, a lot of these families, they have tried things already to help their child, you know, medication sometimes, or, you know, karate class for a child who's very impulsive, Um, paying thousands of dollars to tutors to help them in school. They've tried a lot of things, um, but there still continue to be problems. I, I have a case I'd like to present if we have a few minutes, which I think really captures what we're talking about. Is that okay? Okay. So I'd say about 15 or 16 years ago, I saw a child who was 11 years old at the time, a little girl. When I saw her, her parents reported to me that she'd already been diagnosed with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, and bipolar disorder. She'd also been psychiatrically hospitalized for suicidal behavior. The school district had evaluated her for special education and labeled her as emotionally disturbed. I saw in my office an extremely happy and unhappy, excuse me, an angry child who said to me, I wish I was never born. This was a sad situation and the parents were so desperate. So as I started my intake, I was asking questions about the child's development, her speech development, her social skills, her opportunities to to be with other children, her learning. And I had a feeling within a few minutes that this child may be autistic, high functioning, but still autistic. And it turns out the parents mentioned with all the people that they had seen, and I think she was working with a neurologist as well, all the clinicians, the medical professionals, the hospitals, nobody had ever asked the parents these questions I was asking for the first time when she was 11 years old. And so we went through the evaluation um, and part of that evaluation was not just my clinical impressions, but test data on the child, I got information from the parents, I got information from the teachers, uh from school and I confirmed the diagnosis of autism spectrum. At the time it was uh it was just called uh, high functioning autism. And when I explained to the parents why the child did what she did and how she acted, she had severe sensory processing problems. Um they and I gave them a list of recommendations. So They went to the regional center, an agency in California that provides services for individuals with um, developmental disabilities and got services there. They went to the school district with my diagnosis and said, we want this changed. And the new school said, of course, and started giving her social skills treatment and other things that were more appropriate for children with autism rather than those with emotional disturbance. She was happier. She was doing better. She was making friends. Her parents started parenting her differently Because now they understood she wasn't just being oppositional or hyper or whatever category for the day, but they were meeting her needs. Her, Her behavior improved significantly. I saw her about six months after the evaluation and the child was smiling and said, I now have friends. And she had never had friends in her life. So all of the interventions together made this a happier child. Well, I got an email from her father a few years ago. She graduated from high school. She was attending college. She was happy. She was doing well. She was going to be a functioning adult. The correct diagnosis was able to guide the family and the school district for the most appropriate interventions and then the best outcomes for this child. Thank you for sharing that example. I think it it is so powerful
0: when we get it right and what we're able to facilitate. When we're operating in this environment of like this pressure coming from all sides, you've already outlined kind of some steps of like here, here are the things that clinicians can do. if you have your run of the mill therapist, not testing psychologist working in private practice, pretty siloed by the nature of the beast, would your prescription, if you will be about doing these different rating scales to really get things to bubble up? And then also, uh, this is a multi-layered question. So bear with me. Um, one of the things I've seen is like, particularly when there is potentially neurodevelopmental stuff in the mix, sometimes a clinical fear of like, do we talk about it? You know, like a client walks in and they walk on their toes, you know, or they don't make very much eye contact or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, well, they're, you know, that's just them. Uh And it's like, well, yes. And there actually might be a lot here, like what do you want those clinicians in private practice who are not testing psychologists? Like, what do you want them to know to help facilitate the happier ending to these stories?
1: Well, I think the key things are, you know, be open-minded and don't be afraid to ask the questions. And you don't have to say, oh, that looks like, you know, fill in the blank of the neuro neurodiversity. You can say, I noticed that you do this, or I noticed that, you know, before we start our session, you have to arrange all the pillows on the couch in a very specific way. Do you do that in other situations? Is that impacting you in any way in your life? And that, I think, is a key thing. And I guess we didn't really talk about it, but this is important, is the difference between a clinical diagnosis and a personality quirk, if you will, is, is this impacting the person's daily functioning? That is so important. So you could have somebody with OCD traits, who's got an immaculate house and everything is organized and labeled, but if they're able to keep a relationship and keep a job and function in the world as a typical, fairly typical adult, whatever that is, is it a diagnosis of OCD or OCPD? No, not necessarily because it's not impacting their functioning. In fact, it may be helping their functioning depending on what kind of line of work they're in. Thank you. I I appreciate what you just said in that idea, because I think sometimes
0: when it comes to this idea of personality quirks, I know even for myself, it's like you want to nurture like a place where it's like you do you, like be who you are, show up however you want to show up. And there's also the fear. This goes into kind of the colonialization of our system, but it's like, well, by doing this and I'm pathologizing the um, immense interest and joy you have in collecting Uh, those figurines, you know, it's like, well, that's then, then that's diagnosable. Um, But I appreciate what you're saying in the importance of, well, let's look at what the functional impact is of this. And is it actually pointing to a condition that there, that somebody could be held by understanding this thing about themselves or potentially even getting treatment for not necessarily that, <laughs> that quirk, um, but for
1: these things that might be limiting or hurting them elsewhere. Exactly. And to answer your question, I say consultation, consultation, consultation is a lot of therapists. Unfortunately for various reasons work in isolation. They don't have colleagues that they can you know, reach out to if they're in an office by themselves. Um, if you're in that kind of situation, or even if you're in a group, make it a point to reach out to your colleagues or previous supervisors. I had this ideal situation when I was training as an intern, which was, I loved, we had the first year master's level interns, we had the doctoral level interns, and then we had um, a a clinical staff member who was an experienced clinician, all on the same treatment team, and we would discuss our cases. And we get input from each other. And clearly, the more experienced people would be able to add things. And even even the new people who didn't have a lot of experience had a different insight or, or perspective, and they would bring that up. And then the others of us were like, wow, that's a good point. That's something that you should probably you know work with with this client. And so collaboration and consultation with your colleagues, I think, is critical. Um, get with a networking group if you can, or just find one or two colleagues and, you know, talk once a month. I'm, I belong to a couple of different networking groups that we do this and we can reach out to each other when we're having a, 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 a tough case and we just want to get somebody else's opinion, especially if they work with the same population or similar population that we do and they've had similar experience. It's great to kind of just, you know, get get feedback, bounce off an idea. I'm thinking this, or I had this interaction with the client and i'm not sure if i should do this or this i think you bring up a really good point that um we have blind spots
0: and by consulting and hearing feedback from other people potentially that's different than what we believe it could actually be very helpful and while potentially uncomfortable may also be in the patient's best interest um thank you Dr. Torcato, there's so much more here to talk about, um, just kind of in the nitty gritty. But I think you've covered so much in our conversation today about not only the importance of diagnosis, but how do we do a better job of getting it right so that um, we can put our clients, our patients on a track where they're more likely to get their needs met instead of you know, g- giving them a salve for the wrong condition. <laughs> Um, for our listeners who want to learn more about some of the concepts you've mentioned. So you've talked about the hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology. So that's the high top that you mentioned. Are there any other resources that you found to be particularly helpful in really, um, building out this
1: diagnosing idea? And again, Dr. Wu's book is another one you already right. mentioned. Dr. Wu's book is, is really useful. And of course the DSM, you know, uh, there's another one that it's more for, for psych testing that, um, Oh, I don't have it in front of me, the, the referral. Um, I mean, the reference. It's, a, it's a, a huge book about all different types of psychological tests. But keep in mind that if you're, depending on the state you're in, um, you may not have access, be able to access some of these published tests by the test publishers because you have to have a certain level of educational licensing to do it. But um, the one I mentioned that Hightop uses is on the website psychiatry.org. And there are many things out there that you could just Google, you know, um, screening instrument for depression, screening instrument for bipolar, and find these things that they're, they're open access. Um, so just, and what it does is it gets the client to kind of focus on a specific thing and symptoms that they're experiencing, and then let the clinician know, yes, this is an issue for me or has been in the past, or no, this is not me at all. And then you can kind of put that diagnosis to the side and start working on other things.
0: Fantastic. And for our listeners who want to learn more specifically about you and about your work, what's the best way to do that?
1: Um, probably my website where they can email me and it's, uh, www.drshiro And that's spelled D R S H I R O. That's my first name. And then psych, P S Y C H dot com, drshiro dot com. And you're welcome to, to email me. Fantastic.
0: Again, for our listeners, we have Dr. Shiro Pereira Torquato here. Thank you for joining us. Every time you come on, you teach us so much. And um, I just, I really appreciate it because I think this is a really important conversation. Um, thank you to your uh Sherlock Holmes self for coming on <laughs> and sharing some insight with us for uh, the, the the lowly Watsons who do not have <laughs> the same skill set that you do and we can we can learn from it. I appreciate very, very. it.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed doing it with you.
0: Thank you so much, Cheryl.
1: You've just finished
0: listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.